Christians. We're going to begin a study here that will go until the middle of January. This morning we'll do an introduction and we'll read the book. Let's pray. Father, thank you once again for the gift of your word, it being all-sufficient, it being everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who leads us into truth, who, who opens our eyes to your greatness and your majesty. Thank you for the Apostle Paul, a man who was governed by thankfulness and gratitude in prison while he's writing this letter and yet giving thanks and thankfulness and rejoicing and joyous dominate this letter. And so, Father, I pray that as we come to study this, that we would see you and that our hearts would be buoyed, that we, in the midst of our day of, of uncertainty and trouble, that our hearts would be comforted, that we would be dominated by hope, as Paul was encouraging these Colossians to be. And most of all, that we would be governed by truth, that we would seek you above anything and everything else, that you would have preeminence for us in everything. In Christ's name, amen. God's word is timeless, and it is always appropriate. And I think as, as, um, as we get into this book, we're going to see that that's just as true with this. Paul writes this book because he's wanting to deal with um, an issue with a church where he's never been. Paul had never been to Colossae. And yet, here we have this letter written to them in a time of their need so that he would be able to encourage them and help them along in their fight for orthodoxy and their life for Christ. Now, up until the 19th century, there really had never been any dispute that this book was written by Paul. And this, of course, is the gift of, um, in the later parts of the 19th century, remember, uh, in the middle 1800s, what started to come into prominence? In the middle 1800s, the Enlightenment. And all kinds of things come out of that, right? On the, on the, on the, in the scientific field, what starts to gain traction in the middle 1800s? Evolution, Darwinism, that starts to come out. And you run into something that's called higher criticism. These people who, who take the Bible and um, start to look at it with a far more critical eye. And frankly, most of the disputes that we start to run into when it comes to, well, who wrote this book, rise out of the middle 
19th century. That's when all of that really starts to take traction. And so it's not a, uh, it is not a gift by any means. Now, there are a number of arguments, well, not a number, certainly not as many as there were with Second Peter. Um, and frankly, it's not worth spending a lot of time on. Ben, question? First Peter 1, 21. Well, see, the thing is, is that when you get into, uh, and Ben's comment is, you know, First Peter 1, 21 should answer those questions. The idea here is that um, how is it that you would have somebody 1,800 years after the fact and suddenly they have more understanding and insight as to the author of a letter when people who knew the author of the letter had no problem accepting it back in the day. The idea is that when they, when they talk about higher criticism, what they're talking about is, well, let's look at the language that's used. How many times does this author use new words, especially somebody like Paul, since Paul wrote 13 books out of the 27 in the New Testament? So why is it that he has these these uh, one-time use words, shouldn't we expect that he would be using the same type of terminology all the way through his writings? That is utterly silly. Utterly. So we're to assume that the Apostle Paul is dealing with the same situations over and over and over, and especially somebody like Paul. Paul is one who will take a basic word and he starts adding intensifiers to it or modifiers to it. Does he come up with new words? Yes, he does. Uh, I'm sure that you and I have come up with new words from time to time. I'm sure you all have heard me come up with new words from time to time. And so the idea that um, either the, the uh, somehow the the, the language that he's using, the grammar that he's using. Another one that you'll hear is, well, you know, this type of error that he's dealing with wasn't really fully developed until the second century, and that's after he was alive. That also is silliness. Just because something takes time to develop doesn't mean that it can't be recognized early on. And doesn't mean that the error cannot be recognized early on. So again, Paul wrote the book. When you start reading a commentary and it starts calling into question something that is that basic, you should consider whether you ought to be using that commentary at all. If they can't get something this simple right, how can you have confidence that they're going to be dealing with some of the more complicated issues of a book and doing it ad adequately? So Paul wrote the book, and we're going to find that Colossians has a, a couple of twin, you can't call them triplet because they're not exactly about the same thing. Tychicus carried three books at the same time when he delivered these. So if you look at the end of Ephesians, you'll find that Tychicus is carrying the book of Ephesians to Ephesus. You'll also find when you read Colossians, if you go over and read the book of Philemon, all of a sudden you start seeing a bunch of the same names. You see a name Onesimus. Onesimus meaning 
useful, which is a play on words when you read the book of Philemon. In fact, Paul makes it a play on words. He was formerly useless to you, Philemon. Onesimus was a runaway slave. And so, again, you start to see all of these different things come together. Onesimus runs away from Philemon, who happens to be, he owns the house where the Colossian church meets. Onesimus runs away, he ends up in Rome, where he meets a fellow named Paul, and he gets saved. And Paul says, you're a runaway slave. You should go back to your master. And so, he writes a letter to Philemon. Now, he knows Philemon. He apparently led Philemon to Christ. And so here you have this letter now written where Paul is sending Onesimus back and saying, listen, formerly he was useless to you, but he has become very useful to me. And you will find him useful to you now. And if he's, if he's run up a bill with you, if he has cost you something, then charge that to me. I'll pay it myself. And so you have this book going back and accompanying Onesimus is again... You, you look at the end of Philemon and all the people who are sending greetings, and it's the same people in the book of Colossians. And so these things are intermingled. They're, they're, they're tied together. We'll look at the end of, of Colossians where Paul says, listen, when you get done reading this book, I want you to send it over to the church at Laodicea. And on your part, I want you to get the letter, read the letter that I've sent to them. Now, there is a good chance that that letter to Laodicea is the letter that we call Ephesians. The, there's, there's pretty good evidence that Ephesians was more of a circular letter. In fact, the earliest manuscripts of Ephesians don't say the church in Ephesus. It says it in the title but it actually doesn't have it in the letter itself. And so, and when you read Ephesians and Colossians, what do they sound like? We just got done studying Ephesians. When's the last time you read Colossians? Anybody read Colossians in the last month or two? All right, well, we'll do it this morning. Parts of it? Okay, well, I'll tell you what, when we read the book, have in mind, since we just, Dave just preached through Ephesians, they sound a lot alike. And the ways in which they're different, Paul goes into a lot of family relations in Ephesians, right? Goes on for a good while. In Colossians, he's not going to put the same emphasis in the same places. It's interesting that when you get to the interrelation between slaves and masters, now he gets specific. Well, why might he be getting specific about slaves and masters to the book of Col in, to the church at Colossae? Onesimus. So here you have this other issue to where we have. How do slaves and masters get along? 
Slaves, how do you get along? How do you get along with a believing master? How do you get along with one who is not a believer? Masters, how do you deal with your slaves? Because again, that was a reality in the Roman Empire. So it's written by Paul. Second, who's he writing to? So we have this church at Colossae. Now Colossae is a city on the decline. They're not doing as well as they had in former years. Ben, you got a question? Okay. <laughs> no problem. Um, Colossae was a thriving city several centuries before Christ. So historians talk about how some of the different people going through uh, when Persia was still the, the big dog on the block. They referred to Colossae as a thriving city. That's in 480 B.C. Colossae was on a river, and it's a river that um, there are some chalky deposits, and so it was really good for sheep, and it's really good for dyeing wool. And so Colossae is a thriving town. Well, as they're coming down, they had been kind of the center for Persia. And as they are decreasing... You've got two other towns that are not terribly far away, Laodicea and Hierapolis. Now, Laodicea is taking over as the financial and the economic uh, master of the region. So remember when we studied the book of Revelation and we were talking, reading about Laodicea, how they thought they were rich when in fact they were spiritually poor? They were rich. They were, the city was largely destroyed by an earthquake in 60 AD, and they rebuilt their city without any assistance from Rome. They didn't take any money from Rome. They did it on their own. And so Laodicea is the, is the wealthy, they're the banking center of the region. Hierapolis is the pleasure center of the region. Hierapolis was home to a bunch of hot springs, and so people would go to Hierapolis for, that's where you would have your health spa uh, retreats and all of that kind of thing. That was Hierapolis. Now these three cities are relatively close to each other. They're separated. Uh, they make a small triangle and the furthest two are probably about 12 miles apart. So these are, these are uh, closely proximate to each other and they're about 100 miles east of Ephesus. Now, what's interesting about Colossae, Paul never went there. Now, there is some dispute as to whether or not he went through town at any one point, but he didn't find a church, he didn't start a church there. There's no question about that. When you, when you look in the first chapter, uh, the ch church was almost certainly planted by Epaphras under Paul's direction. And so Epaphras comes to Christ, most likely through Paul in Ephesus, and then he goes to Colossae and he starts the church there. So Paul's never been there, but he's familiar with the church. Now, there are four books that are commonly referred to as the prison epistles. That's going to be Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. 
Now, Philemon is a letter to an individual, just like uh, First and Second Timothy and Titus were written to individuals. Philemon is written to to Philemon, and then you have Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. It's pretty certain that all of these are being written in the early 60s. Now, there again, there's some dispute as to where exactly was Paul imprisoned. If you go to the book of Acts, you'll find that it refers to two imprisonments for Paul. He's held in prison in Caesarea for a couple of years while he's awaiting uh, Felix and Festus to figure out what they're going to do with him before he finally ultimately appeals to Caesar and ends up in Rome. So he's got a couple years in Caesarea, and then he's got a couple of years in Rome, and that's almost certainly in the area of 61 to 64 AD. Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon are probably written before Philippians. So Philippians is toward the end of that, and these others or toward the beginning. Now, if you're thinking about 2 Timothy, that's going to be a subsequent imprisonment. There's a lot of good evidence that Paul was in prison in Rome, he was set free for a period of time, and then he was ultimately arrested again, and that is when he was martyred in Rome. So date of writing is going to be early 60s of A.D. So, why is Paul writing this book? Here he is, he's in Rome, he's never been to Colossae. Why would he all of a sudden write a letter to them? The answer to that is probably found in who's in Rome with him. So when you get, when you look at the end of the book, it indicates that Epaphras is with him. So Epaphras has apparently come to Rome to find him to get some help because there is trouble in River City. There is error that is trying to creep in to the church. And so Epaphras goes to Rome, Paul, how do I fight this? Now, many of the churches that were started in that first century, had issues, didn't they? In fact, were were there any churches that didn't have problems? Are there any churches today that don't have problems? No, and they had them too. And so what often was happening, again, when you had someone come in, the gospel comes into town, and people turn, they, they repent, they believe, And they are now, instead of rather than living for themselves, they're living for Christ. Satan doesn't take that lying down. He is going to bring opposition. Now, there's going to be plenty of opposition from those who hear the gospel and reject the gospel. You're going to have that. But you also had people going from town to town trying to bring in diluted poison. I remember being young, um, I, I was a kid when I heard this, Satan will use a lake of truth to hide a pint of poison. And so often in, in cults, there will be elements 
of truth in the teaching of that cult. What do they do with it? What's, what are, what's the basis for just about every cult that's out there? What do they do? Come on, wake up. Say what? They twist it. Exactly. So you take something that on its face is right, but then you, you throw in some other stuff with it. And all of a sudden, something that was true has just become what? False. One of the things that we're going to see here in Colossians, Paul is going to stress the preeminence of Christ. The enemy takes preeminence and changes it to prominence. What just happened? What does it mean to be prominent? Out in front. Does it mean you're alone? Oh, no. You can have, in fact, we read that in the scripture, he was one of the prominent men. Prominent says, oh yeah, he's important, but he's not exclusive. And Paul is not going to have any of that. And frankly, neither is God. Christ is preeminent, meaning what? Yeah, he's before all. He's not just special. No, he is over all. In nothing does he take second place. In nothing is he somehow subject to someone else other than the Father himself. And so we've got heresy beginning to make inroads. Now, again... Can you understand how when someone comes out of paganism, when somebody has had a lifestyle dominated by different passions, what is often a response to these passions after someone is converted? Someone's an alcoholic. They come to Christ. What often is their response now to alcohol? Okay, and, it, and in fact, yeah, it is, it's here, I'm over here. I want nothing to do with this here. And so when, when someone has been an alcoholic and they come to Christ, are they a social drinker? No. They want nothing to do with that. And so you go from this, you go from one extreme, and oftentimes you go to an opposite extreme. And that's, that happens with many different things, right? And so that can be born out of something that is good, yet at the same time, it can also take on a life of its own. Because now, how I'm responding to this, you know, this has been a problem in the past, I want to avoid that problem, 
so that I can walk in a manner worthy of my calling, right? Yet, when I say, okay, now that is going to be my response to this, but now I'm going to take that and it should be your response as well. What is that turning into? Say it louder. Legalism. Was there, should there be, in fact, biblically, was there a command to have nothing to do with alcohol? No. What's going to be the, usually, what's going to be the example that's given for that? Okay, well, Jesus turned water into wine. Yeah, Paul tells Timothy, look, take some wine for your stomach. You got, you got some health issues? Take some wine for your stomach. The first century wasn't like it is today. They didn't have necessarily access to good, safe drinking water all the time. And so wine was a way in which you could get around. Not, you know, not picking up some kind of a, of a parasite or something in your water. So again, what was the instruction that was given? I'm sorry, say it louder. Right. Don't get drunk. Don't give yourself over to the influence of alcohol. Rather, give yourself over to the influence of the Holy Spirit. And so the idea is, is that there's no prohibition against it. What the prohibition was, was don't be dominated by it. That's the, that's the, that's the prohibition. So again, what often would happen in here is that you would, you would run into um, different mindsets. And so one of the mindsets that came along in the first century was that, you know, God's good, and the problem in life is that matter, the physical world, is bad. That's the problem. So the solution for dealing with that problem is having less and less and less to do with the physical world. Now, if the physical world is bad, then how do they deal with Jesus? Did Jesus, number one, was he God? Number two, well, how would God come to have a physical body when physical stuff is bad? So now what do they end up doing? Say it. Yeah, Jesus wasn't a man. Or he's a man but he's not God. And so here again, either way, you've got serious doctrinal issues here because you're denying something that is true about Christ. And so you also had these people who became very ascetic. Now, ascetic and ascetic are very, com are very similar words and they're probably related in more ways than one. All right, because when you get to be, when you're ascetic, it is, all right, I'm going to turn away. I'm going to deny a lot of physical things. That's where you start running into, as Paul is going to talk here about here, do not handle, do not touch. 
the idea of I'm going to deny a lot of physical desires. So I'm not going to eat certain things. What's another one that, get with, that would get lopped in there? If I'm not going to eat certain things because I'm trying to limit you know, my, my, my physical contaminations, what's something else? What's a basic relationship that would end up getting denied in there too? Marriage. The only thing that you could say about the ascetics is they sure wouldn't be able to populate and, and, and propagate their, their teaching that way. Because if you don't get married and you don't have kids, well, sooner or later, what you're saying is going to die out unless you're looping someone else into your hypocrisy. So the idea here is that you've got these people who are coming in and either doing it from Judaism, so we've run into this in multiple places, right? We've run into it, in, well, we haven't studied Galatians together, but uh, in Ephesians, was there a problem with this? Well, yeah, there was. Most places, there are issues with this, to where people are coming in and they're bringing Christ plus. Jesus isn't enough. You also have to have this particular lifestyle, or you have to have this over here. What was a common one with the Judaizers? Christ plus the, the law. And where they would start with is circumcision. You've got to be circumcised. Well, what's the, what was Paul's... How did Paul deal with that? With the idea of circumcision. If you choose to get circumcised, Christ is of no use to you. If you're going to go back and live under the law, Christ is of no benefit to you. And so, here again, but can you see that as, as, as the evil one is coming in to deal with, try to um, take believers and get them off course, can you see these nudges that are coming in here. These questionings. Again, Satan is outstanding at creating doubt and raising questions. How did he deal with Eve? What were the, the three words? Has God said? What was the temptation to Eve that was given? What is, what is Satan trying to create in her mind about God? I can't trust him. He's holding out on me. There's something that's good for me that he's not allowing me to have. And where did all that come from? The devil made it up. There's no basis in truth for any of it. So in other words, since he made it up, what does that make it? It's a lie. There were all kinds of lies that are being introduced now to Colossae. Gunner. 
Yeah. So Gunner's comment is Satan's first comments about God is that God's a liar. God said you would die. You're not going to die. And so again, it's that whole idea of taking something and tweaking it so that now all of a sudden it's perpetuating error. It's perpetuating something that is not true. And so Epaphras goes to Paul and says, look, I need some help. How do I deal with this? And Paul, in turn, writes this letter so that it can be carried back to Colossae. So what's the book about? First and foremost, it is about the preeminence of Christ. Now, it's interesting. Paul is going to take error on, head on, but where does he start? If the question is going to be that Jesus isn't enough, then you don't know who Jesus is. And so let me tell you who he is. And that's where he goes. And that is going to dominate everything in the book. And frankly, it ought to dominate everything for us. Because guess what? We are faced with things, with ideas that come in and raise the question, is Jesus enough? In our culture, specifically in our culture, do we hold to Christ is enough? Do we hold to that his word is utterly sufficient? Do we hold to the idea that his word is ultimately and completely through and through authoritative? Now look, I know I'm preaching to the choir, all right? I know that. Because I see your heads nodding up and down. And I would expect that your heads would be nodding up and down. Yet, there are other ideas that creep in. So just to throw, just to, just to throw something, I'm going to throw a grenade out in the middle of the room, all right? It can, be, it can be encouragement for discussion to occur outside of class, all right? How does conservatism relate to Christianity? Lots of people, lots of Christians, are disappointed in the results of the election. Why? So just chew on that one. So the idea here, the the preeminence of Christ is through and through. And again, that is the solution when you run into Uh, a doctrine that says it's Christ plus anything. The idea is, no, when you have Christ, you have everything, and you don't need anything else. Christ alone is sufficient. Christ alone is sufficient for salvation. Christ alone is sufficient for justification. Christ alone is sufficient for sanctification. Christ alone is sufficient for glorification. He's, He's sufficient for anything and everything. His word is sufficient for anything and everything. You don't need need anything beyond him. 
And in fact, if you try to attach something else to him and make that a requirement, what does that bring down on you? It brings down judgment. It brings down condemnation. And so again, this idea about adding something onto Christ and making that to where it's necessary for the Christian life, that is danger Will Robinson territory. If you find yourself getting sucked into that, that is time to run, to escape from that mentality. There are many who would teach that Jesus, great guy, moral man, you know, great role model. But what will they not attribute to him? Oh, they're not going to, well, they're not going to attribute that he's God. Oh, no, no, no. That puts him in a special class. We can't have that. So again, he becomes one of many. And again, that means he becomes prominent. There are some terms that we're going to run into frequently in this book. And so I want you, we're going to read the book now. And I want you, I'm going to put some emphasis on some certain things as we read. And I want you to listen and, be, and start looking for common threads as we read. This is going to take about 13 and a half minutes. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you, formerly, you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations but has now been manifested to his saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory." We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, Nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude." See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of, dwe of deity dwells in bodily form, 
and in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use? in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. So... 
as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve." For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number. They will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas's cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, send you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers so that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. 
When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. So, we've read the book. What, what words carry through? Pardon me? Thanksgiving. So, several ways he says it by, you know, give thanks, giving thanks, being thankful. He throws in the word gratitude in one place. You know, it is amazing, as, as I've been studying this now, uh, Paul is a thankful man. Where is he when he's writing this? He's in prison. He wrote 13 books. 10 out of the 13, after the salutation, what's the first thing he talks about? Giving thanks. He's a thankful man. What happens to you when you're thankful? Okay, you're generous, joyful, positive, I'm sorry, content, ooh, humble, let's run with that one for a bit, because when you're giving thanks, what position are you naturally assuming? You're under. You're under, say it loud. I'm sorry. You're the recipient. You want to cultivate humility in your life? I can tell you a place to start. Be grateful. Look for opportunities to be grateful. Paul was an expert at looking for opportunities like that. He was thankful for this church. Now, this church had trouble. They had a problem. That's why Epaphras is in town to talk to him. And yet, what does he do? He's grateful. I can be grateful to begin with because you've heard the word of truth. And you've responded to the word of truth. There are so many... He looks... And yes, there's an issue here, fine. But there's all kinds of other things there for which to be grateful. And he looks for them. And he cultivates them. Paul's a thankful man. And by the way, what does he, what does God require of us? that we be thankful. Have you ever noticed that with, for instance, in prayer? Be anxious for nothing, but in all things. With prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. In what attitude? We're supposed to do that with 
thanksgiving. I have a problem that I'm bringing to God's attention, and yet I'm to do it in an attitude of thanksgiving. How does that work? That's not a rhetorical question. How does that work? Say it louder, Julie. Okay, we see what he has given us. Why should I be grateful for affliction? Okay, because we know that he's good, we can trust his goodness. All right, here, so here again, if I have affliction, why do I have it? Because God brought it. I know we try to soften that by saying he allowed it. Look, God brought it. Okay? He brought it. Why? Okay, that's, the, that's what I was looking for. He brought it because I need it. For whatever reason, God is at work in me. When God brings me affliction, he is at work in me to accomplish his purpose, right? He's wanting to conform me. Dave was talking about this the last couple of weeks in Philippians. This is coming because he is conforming me. He is transforming me into the image of his son. And the primary tool for that is affliction. It's trouble. So, I need to overcome my initial response to trouble, which is what? I want that at arm's length, and frankly, I like it further than that, right? I want nothing to do with this. So what am I doing? I'm trying to squelch the very thing that God's trying to accomplish. So I'm standing in opposition to him. When I put myself over God's desire, what am I being? When I put my desire over God's, what am I being? What character trait am I displaying? I am being proud. What's the problem? And, I, and God is opposed to the proud. So when I put myself in opposition to what God's trying to accomplish, what do I need? I need more affliction. What's God trying to accomplish? And in fact, what is he going to accomplish? Oh yeah. See, again, if we're going to claim first Philippians 1.6, for I'm convinced, you know, he who began a good work in you is going to perform it until the day of Christ. Okay? By the way, that's true. Who's doing the performing? God is. So 
if I don't knuckle under the original wave, what's God going to bring? Just think of Job. Think of the end of Job. Chapter 40. That's not the end of the book, right? But chapter 40 is where Job comes to the point, you know what, I realize I have spoken out of turn, so I'm going to put my hand over my mouth, but I'm not going to change the way I think. And God says, oh, that's your answer? Really? Will you justify yourself? Will you annul my judgments so that you might be justified? Get ready for round two. And God takes Job out to the woodshed. Why? Because God's after something, and he's going to get it. And he'll bring whatever he has to bring in order to make that accomplishment. Paul was good at that. Paul learned. Remember the thorn in the flesh? Three times he beseeched God that God would take it away from him, and God said what? Yeah, no. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And what does Paul do? Paul does a 180. What he had been asking God to take away, he now embraces. Then I would rather be weak. I'm going to look at this and rather than push it away, I'm going to embrace it because God is using that to accomplish his purposes in me. What would happen to us if all of a sudden we started to view affliction in that way? Because grateful people are something else, too. There's a connection between gratitude. Now, someone said earlier contentment. That's a great one. Grateful people are happy people. Grateful people are happy people. Why? What do they see? Gunner? Okay, so a, a warning sign for a nation is when they become grumblers. A grumbler is somebody who is what? Discontent. Ooh. And by the way, if you're grumbling, are you grateful? Nope. By the way, if you're grumbling, are you happy? No. You're dissatisfied. And it's going to come across everywhere. So, there's one lesson that we can start to take away from Paul right away. Grateful. You're going to, we're going to find prayer, praying, runs through here. We're going to find the idea of rejoicing. What other book was big on rejoicing? Another book that Paul wrote. Philippians, we're studying it, with, Dave's preaching through it, right? Oh, by the way, where was Paul when he wrote Philippians? Oh, he's in the same jail. So again, so that tells us what? Rejoicing is not dependent on our circumstances. What's rejoicing? 
being thankful, rejoicing is a choice. Guess what? Gratitude is a choice. Being thankful is a choice. Meaning, independent of circumstances, right? Gratefulness and rejoicing should go together. They absolutely should. And in fact, you can't help it. Those are, they're joined at the hip. All of that is packaged here in this book. And the only sad thing is that we only get eight weeks. Because we could spend a lot of time unpacking some of this stuff. Questions today? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you that you give us, in your word, examples. You give us pictures that we can follow. You give us ideas of how things should look. And as we've read this book today, we see a man in prison. His body's imprisoned. His spirit is not. The gospel is not. And Lord, help us as we, as we look at all of the situations that we deal with in life. We can choose to be grateful, thankful, content, humble. We can choose to be those things, or we can choose to be grumblers and complainers, dissatisfied, discontent. And Father, I pray that you would help us to to remember that when people look at us, they're, to, they're supposed to see you. And Father, forgive us for how, for what a poor picture we have painted of you by our conduct, by our speech, by our attitudes. I pray that as we study this, that Again, we would be brought face to face with that, that Jesus, Lord Jesus, you're everything. You're first and foremost of everything. And you are to be honored. You are to be adored. You are to be worshipped. You are to be obeyed. And Father, help us that we would do so with joyful hearts that even in the midst of affliction, we would be grounded in the knowledge that you're accomplishing your purposes. And therefore, and you're doing it for our good. And so therefore, we need to be buying in to what you're doing in our lives, regardless of how difficult those things may be. Father, transform our thinking that we would no longer be concerned with ease and comfort. That we would no longer be so wrapped up in living for ourselves. But that rather we would live for him who died and rose again on our behalf. Father, help that to be evident in us. 
Help us to worship you aright today as we come before you, that we would sing with hearts that are truly thankful, that gratitude would bubble out of us in a way that we cannot contain, that we would offer you worship and praise because you're worthy. In Christ's name, amen.